Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Jessica. This is Paula from Nashville. I just wanted to let y'all know that I'm loving the podcast so far, and I think the case is really compelling. Now, the other reason for my call is that after replaying episode one, I noticed that the 911 caller, you know, the, the caller who called in to report Devin's car abandoned, this sounds like the same caller who called to complain in episode two. I could be wrong, but I just thought it might be something y'all might want to check out. Thanks so much. Um, yes, I'd like to report a vehicle. No, um, it's just a vehicle. I, I think it's been abandoned. Yes, um, Forest Service Road 698. Forest Service Road 698. You guys are wasting your fucking time. I mean, what a joke. You're not even real investigators. Different douchebag with a voice recorder. If she wants to go missing, I can't let her. Because I've got some news for you. She obviously doesn't want to be found. So just leave her alone. So just leave her alone. Forest Service Road 698. So just leave her alone. Holy shit. Do you hear that? It's the same voice. Yeah, it's exactly the same. There's no way that this is a coincidence. He had to have known it was Devin's car. Do you think this guy is Devin Stalker? I don't know. Should we call him? Yeah, I mean, we can try. Welcome to Dead of the Night, an investigative podcast looking into the disappearance of Devin Riesling, a 23-year-old nursing student who disappeared on February 9th, 2019. On our last episode, we spoke to Isaac Miller, who provided a solid alibi for his whereabouts on the night Devin disappeared, and also confirmed that Devin did have a stalker who followed her around in a white van. Hey, this is Gareth. Hi, uh, this is Kenneth Bailey. I'm the host of the Dead of the Night podcast. Oh, oh yeah. No, I was wondering if you guys would find me. Wait, is your name Garrett Lee Haynes? I want to know. Uh, well, I think we went to elementary school together. Yeah. No, I, I know who you are. Uh, okay. Would you be willing to meet with us for an interview? How much do you pay? Oh, it's it's not for money. It's, um, we're just trying to find... Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, okay. It just seems like you have some information about the disappearance of Devin. Hold up. You know that guy? 
Yeah, uh, we actually used to be good friends in elementary school. Um, but in fifth grade, his parents died in a car accident. And he kind of just dove off the deep end. He wouldn't talk with people, not even me. He'd have these fits of rage, like, he just completely changed. Um, and then his grandma took him out of school, started homeschooling him after that. I haven't seen him since. So, you wouldn't happen to know where he lives, do you? Uh, well, if he still lives with his grandma, then yeah. Mm. It's maybe two miles away from where I live. Should we go over there? Do you think, do you think he'll talk to us? I mean, yeah, let's try. I'm pretty sure it's this one on the corner. Are you positive? No, but I remember that flagpole. His grandma always had a huge American flag out front, and I remember the front door. You mean that house at the end? Yeah. The one with the white van pulling out of the driveway? Oh, shit, yeah, you're right. Is that Garrett driving? It's hard to tell with the windows tinted, but it kinda looks like him, yeah. Well, I guess that is his house after all. Yeah. I guess we found it. Should we go? Right now? I mean, he's obviously not home. Maybe his grandma is. Why do you always make me do the most uncomfortable things? It's my job. <sighs> Alright, let's try. We approach the small brick house. A single story with a basement and a small pasture outback with a single horse and a run-down horse trailer resting in the driveway. The house looks exactly like I remembered it from elementary school. I remember playing in the sprinklers in the front lawn, shooting down a wind chime on the front porch with a Nerf gun. I lost track of Garrett after his grandma started homeschooling him, but I had heard a few rumors about him over the years. Rumors that he had become withdrawn that he got really into World of Warcraft, and one rumor about him being involuntarily committed at Intermountain Hospital, a psychiatric facility in Boise. I wasn't sure if there was any truth in any of these rumors, but what I did suspect was that his grandmother was the same warm, loving figure that I remember her being from my childhood. Hello. Hi, I'm looking for Garrett. Well, you just missed him. He just ran out to run an errand. Do I know you? Actually, you might remember me. My, my name is Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth! Oh, come here, you. I haven't seen you since you were, what, ten years old? Yeah, I, I got old. Well, not as old as me. Come in, come in. Oh, are you, are you certain? Of course. Garrett just slipped out to run an errand, but he'll be home soon. You can wait for him inside. It's too cold out. And who are you? Oh, hello. Uh, I'm Jessica. I'm, uh... She's my friend. Well, can I get you something to drink? Some coffee? Lemonade? Oh, no, that's okay. Thank you, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm alright. Thank you. Alright. Well, you just go ahead and wait for Garrett in his room. It's just down the stairs there. Just holler at me if you need anything. Okay. Absolutely. I have to say, it's so nice that you came by. Garrett hasn't had visitors in quite a long time. We head down the basement stairs, which are covered in a plush carpet straight from the 1970s, and descend into an open room that looks quite a bit different than the playroom I remember. What the fuck? Plastered. Across the entire back wall are photographs. Photographs of just one person. 
Devon. There's her yearbook pictures from freshman through senior year. The group picture of her and the rest of the Emmett High School debate team. Candid shots of her with Isaac and Maxine. There's pictures that I recognize from Devon's Instagram. Pictures of Devon on the campus at the University of Michigan, dancing at the Tree Fort Music Fest in Boise, holding an ice cream cone and grinning. Worse than the pictures I recognize from social media or yearbooks are the pictures that I've never seen. Pictures that look like they've been taken with a telephoto lens from a distance. Pictures of Devon through windows and across parking lots. And right in the middle is the picture I've become all too familiar with. The one used on Devon's missing poster, taken on Christmas, in her bright red Christmas dress. And the whole scene looks like a still from a horror movie. This is fucking creepy. And that? Is that a model of Devon's fucking bedroom? I think it is. This is like some pretty little liar shit. Along the wall, plastered with Devon's picture, is a small table with a square model of a room, about 18 inches in length and 8 or 9 inches long. I've only seen Devon's room in photographs, but from what I can tell, it's an exact replica of her bedroom, complete with her bedspread with its tiny yellow daisies, and a little wooden desk with makeup, a mirror, and a miniature copy of an open book. The model appears to be a work in progress. On the desk in the corner of Garrett's room, next to a massive computer tower with three monitors, there's a half-painted clay model of a chair, with a dried-out paintbrush and some model painting supplies. It's even got electricity. I flick a tiny light switch on the wall of the model room, and a lamp really turns on. It would be impressive if it wasn't so deeply disturbing. Maybe we should get out of here. Yeah. Let's get out of here. Before Garrett gets home. Jessica is pointing to the wall opposite the shrine, where several hunting rifles are mounted proudly to the wall. I suddenly worry about how things could go wrong if Garrett were to come home and see us in his room. Leaving so soon? Yeah, I'm sorry. We actually have to take off. I forgot I have a dentist appointment to get to. Are you sure? Garrett would be so happy to have a visitor. We'll come back soon, okay? I, I promise. Alright, I'll let him know you came by. Come again soon. The white van. The pictures of Devon. The exact replica of her bedroom. It was becoming clearer and clearer that we found Devon Stalker. Could he have been responsible for Devon's disappearance? I started thinking about the 911 call. How did Garrett know where Devon's car could be found? Was it because he planted it there? Or perhaps he followed her up a snowy mountain road in the dead of the night, waited for his opportunity, then took advantage of her moment of weakness when her car got stuck in the snow. I had so many questions. I have a theory. Okay, shoot. So, you know how Isaac said that Devin broke her phone, and the very next day, her stalker dropped off a brand new phone on her front porch? 
Yeah, what about it? Well, I'm not sure if you noticed, but Garrett had quite the computer setup. Uh, I'm thinking he knows a thing or two about technology. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's pretty decent evidence for that. What if he put some kind of tracking software on Devin's phone before he gave it to her? That's an interesting take. You might be right about that. While I waited to hear back from Brett about the possibility of spyware on Devin's phone, Jessica and I did a deep dive into Garrett's background. Garrett Lee Haynes was born in April of 1998 to parents Annie and Caleb. Caleb was a locksmith with a small mobile locksmith business, and Annie did the bookkeeping, appointment setting, and other office tasks. In September of 2008, Garrett and his parents were involved in an accident while they were driving home from a camping trip. They collided with a deer, went off an embankment, and rolled the vehicle three times. Both of his parents died on impact, but Garrett survived with only minor injuries. His grandparents took legal custody of him, and that's when his behavioral problems began. In November of that year, Garrett's grandmother requested an IEP, or an Individual Education Plan, under the basis that Garrett had a, quote, emotional disturbance, which is one of 13 qualifying categories under Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But whatever help he was granted wasn't enough, and his grandmother withdrew him from public school and began homeschooling him from the end of 5th through 12th grade. Most of what I found out about Garrett I learned through his Facebook and his posts on his Reddit account. As a frequent contributor to the subreddit r atheism, Garrett shares a lot of details about his life, including his experience of losing his parents at a young age, being raised by his grandmother, and turning his back on religion, as well as his hobbies, which include video games and coding. While looking into his background, we didn't find any arrests or criminal charges besides a few traffic tickets, and he doesn't appear to own any property, but he is registered as the sole owner of a business called Mobile Upgrade Idaho LLC. Some digging showed a handful of eBay listings with refurbished phones and laptops, and I'm assuming that's how Garrett makes a living because I've found no evidence of him being employed anywhere else or going to college. What struck me the most about Garrett is, outside of the fact that he was living in his grandparents' basement at 22, which really wasn't all that uncommon, especially in an economically depressed place like Emmett, is how normal he seemed. Yeah, maybe a little nerdy with his interest in playing World of Warcraft, but otherwise his online presence and background search made him look like a fairly normal person. It led me to ask this question. Do stalkers know that their behavior is unacceptable and wrong, and subsequently, do they always hide it? Or are some stalkers totally unaware that their actions are inappropriate and creepy? Was Garrett aware that his obsession with Devin was disturbing, leading him to go out of his way to hide that part of his life from the outside world? Ultimately, I needed more information, so I got a hold of a psychologist through the University of Idaho named Dr. Andrea Lockhart, who specializes in the psychology of stalkers. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for talking with me, Dr. Lockhart. You're welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Tell me what is going on in the mind of a stalker. Well, one thing that stalkers have in common is the obsession. As soon as their obsession with the victim begins, it can take over their whole life, prevent them from sleeping or eating, cause them to lose jobs, or prevent them from looking for work. Many of these stalkers suffer from repetitive thought patterns. Just replaying thoughts over and over like a broken record? Exactly. Another common element of stalking is the fantasy. Stalkers have unrealistic fantasies about their victims. They're often suffering from delusions. Either they think that their attempts at contact will result in a positive reaction from their victim, or sometimes they're intentionally seeking to instill fear and harm their victims. The research is still being done, but we know that there are at least seven subtypes of stalkers What's the most common subtype? Probably the rejected lover. This is usually an ex-boyfriend or an ex-spouse. When the victim and the perpetrator were in a relationship previously, it was usually a controlling or abusive relationship. When that relationship ends, the perpetrator feels entitled towards that victim. There's a sense of ownership there. I see. Um, is there intention to get back together with their ex or? The intention usually fluctuates between seeking reconciliation and revenge. So, is this subtype of a stalker particularly dangerous? Yes. This type of stalking, especially from an abusive ex-partner, can definitely lead to harassment, assault, and in some cases even murder. What subtype is the most dangerous? Uh, the predator subtype is the most dangerous type of stalker, but fortunately, predator stalkers are relatively rare. How rare? Probably about 4% of stalkers. And these are stalkers with the intent to kidnap or murder? Yes, exactly. So the primary motivation for predatory stalkers is sexual assault. These people are usually suffering from a paraphilia, such as pedophilia, sexual sadism, or other psychosexual disorders. Uh, do these type of stalkers take enjoyment in terrorizing their victims? Yes, they find pleasure in the power and control that they feel over their victims. Additionally, they stalk so they can discover that person's routine and make preparations to kidnap or attack them while they're alone and vulnerable. So these kinds of stalkers are usually not talking publicly about their victims? No, they usually take efforts to hide what they're doing from other people in their life. So it seems like they know what they are doing is wrong? Well, at the very least, they know that they would be stopped, punished, jailed, socially ostracized for their behavior. Are there any subtypes of stalkers that don't seem to have any awareness that what they are doing is wrong or, at the very least, don't try to hide it? 
Um, in a way, yes. The intimacy-seeking subtype is a stalker who's seeking a relationship with someone who they perceive as their true love, or soulmate. Intimacy seekers are primarily characterized by their delusions. These people are either aggressively pursuing a relationship with their victim, or they have deluded themselves into believing that they are in a relationship with the victim. These kind of stalkers will sometimes tell other people that they have a, you know, like a normal relationship with their victim. But most of the time, they're still hiding their more nefarious behaviors from family and friends. How common is the intimacy-seeking subtype? It's the second most common subtype, so probably 34% of stalkers. And is their behavior in part due to poor social skills, like not being able to read social cues or perhaps intellectual disability? Yes, so there's actually another less common subtype called the incompetent subtype. That's characterized by poor social skills, but we do see some overlap between these subtype and the intimacy seekers. The incompetent subtype are people who are seeking a romantic relationship with a victim, but do not have the social skills to seek relationships in a healthy way. And additionally, they can't read the body language and social cues of their victims that are saying, I'm not interested, or even, you're scaring me. Furthermore, if they do recognize that their victims do not want a relationship, they believe that their stalking behaviors will change their mind and win them over. So these are people who see the movies where this guy is aggressively pursuing his love interest and he eventually wins her over. <laughs> right. So these people are watching movies like There's Something About Mary <laughs> and thinking, oh, so that's how I get a girl to like me. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so would you mind if we rewind just a little bit to the intimacy-seeking subtype? What are these stalkers like? So, intimacy seekers are usually quite isolated. They often live alone, they don't have a lot of friends, they, you know, are lacking in close intimate relationships. Which is probably why they're so desperate for it. Yes, exactly. This kind of stalker is desperate for a relationship with the victim, and they interpret any kind of response from the victim, even a negative response, as encouragement. So they thrive on getting that attention. Yes. Even if it's negative, it really encourages them to keep trying to make contact and keep up the stalking behaviors. Most celebrity stalkers actually fall into this category. And these people believe that their feelings are reciprocated by the victim? Yes. They can suffer from the delusion that their victims are in love with them too. And they have some kind of special connection. They idealize their victims as their perfect partner, really put them on a pedestal and romanticize them. This type of stalking behavior usually starts small and escalates over time. So at first it's repeated phone calls, gifts, letters, lots of unwanted contact, and then it ramps up to following them around, spying on them, approaching them in public or private, breaking into their house, and then it's really rare but possible that it escalates further into violence, kidnapping, or even homicide. Do these kind of stalkers recognize that their victims do not maybe want a relationship with them? Many of them do not. However, if they are able to identify that they've been rejected, they commonly become threatening or violent. That can often escalate the behaviors. How does it end? How long do they keep it up? Do they not stop until they're caught or...? Mm, the intimacy seeker is by far the most persistent type of stalker. In the absence of legal consequences or mental health treatment, these kinds of stalkers can fixate on one victim for years. What about, say, like 8 to 10 years? Oh, sure. I studied one case where this patient had been stalking his high school math tutor for 
15 years. Holy shit. It's difficult, too, because these kinds of persistent stalkers are usually not dissuaded by legal consequences. Do they just not think about the outcome, or...? They usually see it as just another challenge for them to sort of prove their love, prove that they're devoted. So they think their victims will be flattered that they won't let the police or law stop them? Yes, exactly. So you can see why these kinds of stalkers are quite harmful, even though they may be less violent than the predator subtypes, just due to the sheer relentlessness. We also know that the longer the stalking behavior continues, the more likely that the stalker is suffering from some form of mental health issue or personality disorder. What kind of mental health issues are associated with stalking? The research about the psychology of stalking is ongoing, but what we do know is that about half of all stalkers suffer from mental health issues or personality disorders. These can include depression and anxiety, um, antisocial and borderline personality disorder, and of course, paranoid and delusional disorders, such as erotomania. Which is... Erotomania is a relatively uncommon delusional disorder that's primarily characterized by delusions of reference. They interpret imaginary or innocuous events such as messages or signs that their admirer does in fact love them, or is even trying to communicate with them. Can you give us an example? Sure. One of the longest case studies we have was a patient who believed that her classmate was in love with her, and that various enemies, including their families and teachers, were plotting to keep them apart. She had many delusions of reference. She thought that any time she saw the color purple that it proved he loved her. She also would interpret the numbers and letters of license plates as messages that he was sending to her. Um, her condition persisted for over probably 30 years, and over time her delusions grew to believing that he would come visit her in secret at night. That they had many children together who'd been kidnapped and taken from her by various people. All this despite the fact that he had multiple restraining orders against her, had moved and changed his name to get away from her. At one point, she planned an entire wedding, paid for a venue, bought a dress, and sent out wedding invitations to his friends and family. She planned an entire wedding for him? Yep. Wow, that's... Okay, wow. Uh, so, was clearly not aware that her behavior was unacceptable. No, she was fully confident in her delusion that her victim was in love with her. In fact, she would often state that the reason she even liked him in the first place was because of just how much he adored her. That's a bit terrifying, isn't it? It certainly terrified her victim, yes. So, generally speaking, what percentage of stalkers are violent? Well, we know that only about 2% of stalkers commit homicide, but somewhere around half of stalkers torment their victims with physical harm or threats. And what about the psychological harm of being stalked? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, because the research shows that over 70% of victims of stalking suffer from some form of post-traumatic stress disorder brought on by the harassment they've seen. So yes, there's quite a bit of emotional harm that these victims are undergoing. Are these victims reporting their experiences, or is it similar to sexual assault in that many victims are either internally or externally discouraged from reporting? Research tells us that the average number of incidents, of stalking incidents, that victims endure before they contact police is about 100. 100 incidences before they even report it? Wow, okay. So you can imagine that many cases are likely never reported at all. Most are never investigated, and sadly, many victims are discouraged to come forward when they suspect that no action will likely be taken to protect them. So what steps should a victim take if they feel they are being stalked or harassed? Well, the most important thing a victim can do is to take basic safety precautions. You know, locking the doors and windows, being aware of your surroundings, checking the backseat of the car, things like that. Second, it's important to document. 
document, document, document. Every time there is contact or harassment by the stalker, it's important to preserve it. So screenshot it, save those emails or messages, keep those text messages, and keep written log of any times you notice them following you in public, or any contact that you receive at all. This is going to help establish a pattern to help prove that yes, you've asked this person to leave you alone and they're still harassing you. Then you should take all that evidence, go to the police. Do you think that a restraining order is enough to keep a stalker at bay? It may not always be enough, but it's certainly the first step. Well, Dr. Lockhart, I just want to say thank you for your time. All of this has been very educational and very helpful. Of course. I'm so happy to help spread awareness about this problem. I encourage anyone listening to please reach out for help if you're being stalked. Hey, Kenneth, I just heard back from the data forensics lab and I got to give it to you. You're getting pretty good at this. Whoever gave Devin that phone loaded it full of spyware that would let someone read her text messages, see her GPS location, and even look into her social media accounts. Here's what we know. Garrett Lee Haynes had been stalking Devin for years. He had installed spyware on her phone, could read her text messages, see her pictures, track her location. He followed her around in a white van. He knew what the inside of her bedroom looked like. What we don't know is how Garrett knew where Devin's car was abandoned. Since she had left her phone at home the night she went missing, Garrett couldn't have been tracking her location. So how did he know where her car would be found when he called its location into 911 two weeks later? You've reached Kenneth Bailey. Please leave a message after the beep. You came to my fucking house. You fucking shitbag, I'm gonna fucking destroy you. You better watch your fucking back, Kenny. How would you like it if I came into your house started snooping around you motherfucker? You're a sad sack of shit. You can't avoid me forever, Kenny. I know where you fucking live. You better stay the fuck out of my business or you're going to be in a world of fucking hurt. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. For days after Jessica and I visited Garrett's house, I've been on the receiving end of calls like this. I didn't answer. Partly because I was waiting to hear back from Brett about the spyware, but partly because I was... well, a little afraid. But if I was going to learn anything about Garrett's involvement in this case, I knew I had to talk to him eventually. Hello? You fucking... You absolute shitbag. You came to my house? Garrett, you can't stop me from investigating this case. I'm warning you, Kenny. I can find your deepest, darkest secrets. Don't fucking test me. You have no idea what I'm capable of. That's what I'm afraid of, Garrett. Do you seriously think I would ever hurt Devin? You don't know me at all. For 10 years, I have been there for her, supporting her, cared for her. Tell me you had nothing to do with Devin's disappearance. You fucking tell me that you had nothing to do with her disappearance, okay? I didn't do shit to her. So you didn't call 911 to report her car being abandoned? No. Come on, dude. We know it was you. 
Whatever. Garrett, it's your fucking voice on the 911 call. I can play it back for you. Fine. Fine? Fine, yeah. It was me. I called in her car, okay? Uh, so did you follow her out there? Or maybe were you hiding in the back of her car? Or maybe you blackmailed her into meeting you? You're so fucking mad, dude. I didn't do shit to different, okay? Then how did you know where her car was? Because... Because I, uh, I have a GPS tracker on a car, okay? You know, look for yourself. Where? Under the car. On the right side, behind the back tire. The passenger side? Yeah. So you're saying that the only reason you knew where Devin's car had been was because you saw it on your GPS tracker? Yeah. Yeah, how many times do you want me to say it? <sighs> Dude, I'm just trying to understand this. Uh, so if you knew her car was there... Why did you wait 20 days to report it? Look, I didn't know what was going on, okay? All I know is that one day, Devin was here, and the next day, nothing. She was gone. I could see that she went up to the hot springs that night. I thought she just went up to the mountains to clear her head. I take a dip. But then, she was still there the next day. I got worried, so I drove up there. You went out to Devin's car. Day after she disappeared. Yeah, she was gone. Oof. Why did you wait almost three weeks to report her car if you had found it the next day? Because I didn't know what was going on. Devin, Devin was a mysterious girl. Okay, she did things that we had to understand sometimes. I didn't want to stop all over autonomy. Her autonomy? You really care about her autonomy. You put fucking spyware on her phone. You tracked her car with a fucking GPS. You don't fucking get it. We have a connection. What? Dude, you're fucking delirious. I know Devin better than anybody, okay? Are you serious? I'm the only person that she can be real with. Me, guess it. Fuck. Garrett, do you realize how insane that sounds? If you don't believe me, you can go out to Anna Arbor and speak to yourself. Find out who Devin really was. I know who she is. I'm making a fucking podcast you about her. the fucking first thing about Devin. And you do? I know that she's alive. Okay. Now you're just fucking with me. That's why I waited so damn long to report her car. I was waiting for her to send me a message. A message? Like a text message? No. That is not that stupid. It's a code. Just check your phone. Okay. Uh, okay. You sent me a screenshot of an Instagram page. It looks like a spam bot. The username is a bunch of random letters and numbers. That's how Devin communicates with me. Um, so she's messaging you from this account? No messages, God. No. She just friend requests me. So you're saying you know Devin is alive because this account with the username FJ6ZSZH8675309 requested to follow you. That's what I'm telling you. Alright, dude. You need some fucking help. I'm serious. It's a matter of time. Can you figure it all out? Figure what out? That you killed Devin? God, 
even surgeon is so fucking fancy. God damn this dude. This is like it's like elementary school all over again. How? You fucking turning on me. I didn't turn on you. You fucking abandoned me. I... Dude, you went fucking crazy. My parents had just died. Okay, but you can see what's right in front of you, can you? Right in front of your fucking eyes. This is why you'll never find out. That's it for this episode of Dead of the Night Podcast. Thank you for listening. In a couple weeks, we're having a Q&A, so if you have any questions or comments about the podcast or a tip about the case, please call 208-398-3110. This episode was produced by Gina Harris, Spencer Hudson, and Danielle Choda. Jessica O'Neill is our audio engineer. I'm Kenneth Bailey, asking once again... Have you seen Devin Riesling? <laughs>